Today, we talk leadership and excellence and what might get in the way of both. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Tuesday, June 20th, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we meet some leaders with vastly different paths. SDPB's own Larry Rohr is a 2023 inductee into the South Dakota Hall of Fame. We'll ask him about his journey that has made a difference in all our lives. We get to know a 2023 Bush Fellow recipient. Tasha Peltier is on a mission to help Indigenous communities claim their health and wellness. Also, Rachel Willen-Charnley joins us later in the hour. We'll look at their path from their grandfather's microscope to their own lab and lay out a vision for STEM in a post-pandemic world. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. There is a new voice advocating for veterans in South Dakota. Courtney Steffen is the newly elected state legion commander for the South Dakota American Legion. She's joining me now from SDPB's Janine Basinger studio at South Dakota State University in Brookings. Courtney, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited about this. Do I say Commander Stefan? Is that the official? Commander Stefan. I'm going to say that a bunch. That would be official. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say that a bunch. How does that feel for you? <laughs> it's it's really exciting. Yeah. Um, you know, it's been a it's been a long path to get here, but I absolutely love the American Legion and all that it stands for, and I'm happy to represent. Yeah, tell me a little bit about um, your appointment, your election is is groundbreaking. There aren't many women who've held this job. You're one of the younger people who have held this job. How do you carry that with you into the post? You know, it's it's a representation thing. I, I think it's important for women as well as young veterans to know that leadership within these organizations is possible and healthy for the organization. It's great to have different voices heard and new ideas come forward. What are some of your ideas for the future? What are some exciting things that uh, make you think, um, I'm really looking forward to this work day by day? Well, again, um, getting out and letting people know everything that we do you know, my day job is a veteran service officer here in Brookings County, and every day I help connect veterans to their benefits. Well, those benefits are possible because of organizations like the American Legion. We're a 501c19, which advocates on behalf of veterans who are allowed to lobby. We're congressionally chartered. And so these benefits that I help connect veterans to every day are because of veteran service organizations. You know, belonging to the American Legion, the VFW, the DAV, et cetera, you know, that's, that's an investment. That's your voice in your own benefits. And I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that I get the opportunity to kind of spread that message and let people know what their membership means. Yeah. So I served in the United States Marine Corps, and there are times when that feels like a million years ago. <laughs> and then I'll be in a room of other veterans, especially women veterans or people who served at the same time as I did, and something will click. And I'll say, I didn't realize I needed this still. What are some of the advantages of, of joining the Legion and finding those connections that perhaps you weren't even aware because, you know, you've had this whole other career. I mean, that wasn't the six years of my life. It was a long time ago. And yet it lingers. What do you think? 
Absolutely. And, you know, that's kind of the magic of these organizations. There's 241 American Legion posts across the state of South Dakota. And whether I'm in a post like mine, I'm part of Chester Post 136 in Chester, South Dakota, you know, town of 250 people. Mm-hmm. Um, because of our ability to lobby and legislate, I can write a resolution and feel like I'm a part of something bigger at a national level in a tiny post. Or I can go to you know, Sioux Falls or Rapid City and walk into their post. And because I'm in a room of fellow veterans where I can relate to a number of things, it still feels like I'm in a tight-knit small community. Mm-hmm. And that is a beauty of our organization. You know, when I left the Air Force, um, there were things I definitely was looking forward to not partaking in anymore, you know, inspections <laughs> and such. Um, but I found quickly that I really missed the people. I really, really missed my fellow airmen. You know, that tight-knit group, that feeling of camaraderie, I really missed it. And so, you know, I get the opportunity to experience that again in a veteran service organization like the American Legion. Yeah. All right. Let's leave us with an invitation for young veterans or people who've been away from any kind of joining for a while. What do they have to do to join the American Legion? Is there a commitment? Kind of walk people through what that uh, is like. So American Legion membership is year by year. Again, there are 241 posts in the state of South Dakota who would love to see new members walk through the door. Uh, New ideas are welcome. New members are welcome. Always. We have a website, www.sdlegion.org, where you can find all sorts of membership information. Um, But sincerely, you know, in a guard state like South Dakota, uh, we have we have a big generational gap between the draft area draft era of Vietnam veterans Mm -hmm. and the post 9-11 veterans when the joint force concept really started taking place in our military. So, you know, our Cold War veterans, our Gulf War veterans um, and our post 9-11 veterans, it's time to get active. It's time to start, you know, running with these organizations, because if we don't, we stand to, you know, start to lose them. And that's our voice in Congress. And so it, it's more important now than ever for us to really join, be part of that bigger voice, and you know, be part of our community, be invested. Yeah. Courtney Stephan is the newly elected state legion commander for the South Dakota American Legion. Commander Stephan, I hope this is uh, the first of many conversations that we will have in the days to come. Congratulations, and thanks for being here. Thank you, Lori, and thank you for your service. <laughs> you too. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, veterans are often exposed to things civilians will hopefully never experience. But as the saying goes, trauma needs to be dealt with or it will deal with you. June is PTSD Awareness Month. Carrie Lighting is a Sioux Falls-based clinical psychologist at the VA, and she is joining me now in STPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Welcome back, Dr. Lighting. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Nice to see you. This is important work that you do in the world. What got you interested in working with veterans? I I think one of the very first VAs I worked at was in grad school and worked on some research products at the Minneapolis VA. And that's kind of when I was like, okay, trauma is so much a passion of mine and being able to work with folks 
who've experienced trauma and find ways kind of how to make sense out of what comes next. Yeah. And that's been then like a thread throughout my entire graduate work and what I do here. And that's about 90% of my clinical work now. Yeah. It's um, always interesting to me to, to realize how good and skilled the VA is at this partially because they have so many uh, people coming through. Some of the best research mm -hmm. on PTSD is coming out of um, the Veterans Administration. Do yeah. you, is that something that resonates with you? Absolutely. It's. I think it, it gives a, we, just, we keep looking for more and more information, better ways to make people's lives a little bit easier, a little bit more practical, a little bit more like how can we help in each new way. And I think that that comes from just having, wanting to do really good things for our veterans and make life as good as we can and cope as best as we can. And how do we yeah. make sense out of things that don't make sense? Right. Okay. So let's make sense out of some things that don't make sense. Yeah. What exactly? I, you can go back to the history of people, you know, a soldier's heart or shell mm -hmm. shock to PTSD to post-traumatic stress injury. Mm -hmm. Tell us what is the umbrella that we're talking about here. This, um, What is PTSD for our purposes today? Yeah. So PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder is a mental health condition. Um, it's di defined in our like diagnostic and statistical manual as including a certain number of symptoms, but basically it is something that happens in reaction that folks have in reaction to experiencing a trauma. So witnessing or experiencing something that was life-threatening or at least safety um, risky. And so that can include things like combat. It can include things like physical or sexual assault. It can include things like a natural disaster. It can include things like major accidents, like a significant car wreck. And then having a series of symptoms in reaction to that. And I think the piece that is always important is that lots of people experience those kinds of things. And people have reactions because we're, we're human beings and we're not robots. And it's normal to have a stress reaction in reaction to that. If you remember ever being in a car accident, the next time that you got in the car, your stomach right. did that kind of clench. Like, and that's something that for most folks, that will dissipate over time in a number of weeks or months. For some folks, if they're not able to process it and they're not maybe given the chance to or, or time or circumstances to work through it in the moment, we can get into a place where those things don't dissipate. And then these symptoms kind of hang around. So things like nightmares and um, memories that pop in out of nowhere, things like increased irritability or feeling extra alert and on guard, kind of persistent negative emotions or negative thoughts and feelings about themselves and other people, avoiding right? Things uh, that they used to like to do or avoiding people, places, smells, sounds that remind them of their kind of traumatic experiences. All of those things can kind of persist and kind of continue and with kind of no way of them seeing them being able to dissipate over time. Yeah. I heard an author speak uh, last week who said, if you don't deal with trauma, it will deal with you. And mm -hmm. he talked about his own journey. There are ways that this can manifest mm -hmm. numbing activities, addiction yeah. activities, avoidance, relationship troubles. If you know somebody and you think that you're walking alongside their journey with them, how do you encourage them to get help to make that first phone call to the VA, for example? Yeah, it's a hard one because there's not like a one-size-fits-all. I right. think making them like aware that you're there and that you care and that you're open to listening to them is always a good thing. I think uh, trying to force people to do it is not great. Uh, <laughs> people don't like that, and they respond um, kind of poorly to that. But I think making sure that they know what the resources are letting them know what the phone numbers might be or introducing maybe uh, a website. So like the National Center for PTSD uh, is a great resource, www.ptsd.va.gov. It's got a bunch of information on treatments, how to pick maybe a treatment that makes sense for you. And there's a really nice section in there for families and friends yeah. about things that they can do, which is great. Yeah. 
Um, tell me about some of the treatments that are available at the Sioux Falls VA facility. Yeah, so we've got, uh, if we think about kind of uh, psychotherapies, right, so kind of trauma-focused psychotherapies are some of the highest recommended treatments for PTSD per kind of clinical practice guidelines and research. And they all kind of uh, will use different techniques, but still focusing on the trauma. That's what trauma-focused kind of means. Yeah. And so our kind of like top three um, with research support at this point in time, right, our cognitive processing therapy, which will have folks kind of thinking about the way that the trauma is impacted, how they think about themselves, other people, the world, how to kind of look at those beliefs, uh, prolonged exposure, which involves kind of thinking through and processing those negative emotions and memories. And so talking about that with your provider and then starting to do some of those things that you used to avoid. And then uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing treatment. So that involves kind of processing through the trauma itself and kind of thinking about the trauma, bringing it to mind while also focusing on a kind of back and forth light uh, or, or movement or sound. So oftentimes a light or a tone. And so those are kind of the top psychotherapies. Also kind of medication. Uh, medications have been shown to be helpful for PTSD, things like antidepressants or even like specific medications for kind of specific treatments like nightmares or specific symptoms like nightmares. Sure. Um, and all of those are available at the VA as well. Yeah, the VA also has a really great integrative wellness clinic. I yes. know because that is where I go get um, acupuncture and Absolutely. Reiki treatment and nutritional counseling. And there are all kinds of really wonderful, wonderful things for the integrative there. health clinic and, yeah. that mm -hmm. help kind of build on kind of mental health broadly. Things like mindfulness, they do great yoga classes, they yep. do massage therapy, and they're doing kind of newer groups that are kind of coming out looking at kind of these kind of holistically life things that we can uh, impact people's life. And so those are also really great yeah. resources for folks. There's also some really great apps. I always like being able to give people options and apps are a good option to just kind of have on your phone. Um, so like the PTSD coach app is one. Right. Um, and then beyond MST is another looking at kind of um, military sexual trauma specifically. Right. What is on the other side of this? You said at the beginning of our conversation, you know, figuring out what happens next. Mm -hmm. What's on the other side of of growth at this point. Yeah. So it looks different for different folks. For some folks going through kind of treatments can kind of essentially remove most of their symptoms entirely. For some folks, it's reducing yeah. their symptoms or having them be less intense. And the way that I talk to patients a lot about this is kind of thinking about like, not that like life will be perfectly calm and steady because to do that, I'd, you'd have to kind of go live in a bubble. Mm -hmm. um, but can you get some kind of tools and skills and process through what you need to, and then have some things that you can reach for so that when there are some of these kind of day-to-day -day stressors or when that day-to-day -day stressor hits one of those little soft spots that we've got, you kind of know what to reach for and you feel like you can actually know how to manage it and cope with it and obviously still use all of your other support, yeah. but that you feel like you still have something to reach for as opposed to feeling like you're kind of stuck on an island. Yeah. Okay. I have a big question. Yeah. We were just talking with the American Legion commander about even if it's years after mm -hmm. your time of service that you walk in a room with other veterans and it can feel really good. There can mm -hmm. be a connectivity there. And it occurs to me that your work, you might also encounter patients who might have a hard time releasing the symptoms of PTSD mm -hmm. because it feels like releasing that part of their life, which was also really good. Yeah. And you hear this often with people who come back from combat, for example, yeah. who will say, yeah, this is horrible. Also, I felt purpose, um, you know, adrenaline, mm -hmm. uh, camaraderie. I don't want to lose those parts of mm -hmm. my memory, but this other part of that memory is shutting me down, the guilt or the survivor's guilt yeah. or the, you know, uh, the reactivity mm -hmm. and the irritability. How do you help people move on to health when it really means 
um, saying goodbye to part of what might start to feel for some people like an identity. Yeah, it's, oh, I have so many thoughts. So I, I think what can happen with kind of all the, like the guilt and the shame and the survivor's guilt and some of those other things, they kind of can almost feel like it's like a candle snuffer for all the good things in life. Mm-hmm. And so dealing with some of that first actually gives you a chance to feel some of the other things that get kind of snuffed out in the process of those other things. And so I think that can be really helpful, but also no one wants you to have to give up those like memories of things that were good or like the, the, the times that you had that were actually fun um, or those things that had purpose and meaning. But can we remember them in another way? Can we make space for them in your life in this new way, whether it's being part of a group, whether it's being part of um, something related to an activity where you get to in- be interact with other veterans in a, in a way that doesn't involve some of those other things? Can we have a way for you to memorialize that piece of your life and carry it with you forward without feeling like you have to carry like the heaviness with you all the time too in the same yeah. way. Yeah. Oh, I love this. Okay. Well, it's a uh, PTSD awareness month and I will put the resources that you mentioned mm-hmm. up on our website as well. If you're having uh, immediate issues, 988 mm-hmm. is the national hotline. You press one or veterans right away. Carrie yeah. Lighting. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, my next guest's voice should sound familiar. This program is made possible. That yes. Larry Roar has been a pioneer. Yeah. I had no idea what he was going to say yeah. there, by the way. No, I, so, I got a story for that one. Yeah. As a, he's been a pioneer in public media in South Dakota. Now he stands in the 2023 class of the South Dakota Hall of Fame inductees. Um, the person who hired me at South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Are you having any fun? I'm, ha- you know, yeah. <laughs> do you know? On my desk, I have yeah. a picture of Larry Rohr cut out from a, a promotional flyer, and it says, Are you having fun yet? And every day before I start mm. the show, I look at that because for listeners, the yeah. story is when I first began, you would come in every day and you, were say, well, you would say, Are you having fun yet? And I don't know how many months it took me before I was, first, I was irritated. It's like, well, you think this is fun? The pressure is on, the lights, I don't know, you know, I have to, all this research. And then I realized one day it just clicked and I was like, this is supposed to be fun. What a privilege to have this microphone. I've been having fun ever since. Yeah. And you do it so well. When did you learn that this should be fun? Did that come naturally for you or did you have someone who came to you and said the equivalent of, hey, Larry, are you having fun yet? You know, I think I thought from the very beginning, and this is my... 50th year in broadcasting, yeah. that it was it was going to be fun, that it looked like it would be fun, and it was. What made you take the first step up to the microphone? Do you remember your first... A, f- a friend of mine was actually uh, working part-time with a radio station here, and um, it hadn't occurred to... I mean, I, maybe it had occurred to me. I mean, it just looked like it was fun, and I had a chance... Uh, eventually, I was a weekend fill-in guy... <clears throat> at KELOAM Radio. Yeah. I remember one Sunday morning with Bob Roberts, the, one of the jocks, <laughs> he brought me in, and I was going to do the Sunday morning show, and he he said, uh, "Here's open up the book, read this line, and hit this button. And I said, and now the Lutheran hour. And I hit a button and sat back for 55 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> and the rest is history. Yeah. Did you always sound like yourself? I, I think so. And that was... Uh, <clears throat> I don't think I tried to sound like anybody else, and I, I tell this story because uh, I, I worked at, at KELO for a couple of years, and then at, at the group of stations, which was headed by KXRB, yeah. 
And one of the programs on KXRB back in the early days was, was the Ralph Emery Show. And it was a, a daily one-hour show with guests and music out of Nashville. And they would send the show out on an album. And you would play cuts on the album over the hour and throw the album away. It was the way that you shipped media in those days. And, there was, and Ralph had a guest on. Or Mo Bandy was his guest that week, the <clears throat> Bandy, the rodeo clown singer, and they came back from one of the one of the breaks after a local commercial break, and Ralph started talking, and Mo said, well, "Wait a minute, uh, Ralph, are we back on the air?" And well, sure, Mo, yeah, we are. He says, "You know, I can never tell because you always talk the same, whether we're just talking or whether you're on the radio," and I don't know if I was consciously doing that, but I've never forgotten that. Yeah, you know, that you just show up with who you are, and it either works or it doesn't. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about public media, your transition there. Mm -hmm. And then specifically, I want to talk about how you have, uh, you're a humble guy. So these conversations are always hard because I want to say, like, you revolutionized this. And all the Hall of Fame people go like, no, Ada, don't. But you did. You revolutionized programming, high school athletics, high school fine arts, Mm -hmm. really localizing things. Tell me about the transition to public media and then the power of it in, in that vein, in the programming vein. Okay. Um, when I was still the program director at KXRB, um, would drive into Sioux Falls every morning, and I was a fan of public radio, and I would drive in to work at a time I could listen to my favorite part of Morning Edition, mm-hmm. and I would, because I was on the midday show, and I'd drive home later so I could hear my favorite part of All Things Considered. Um, so, I mean, I, would, I was a fan, and it was the fall of 1988, and this is what public, this is what pro- commercial broadcasting, how I understood at the time. One of the last things I did as a promotional stunt is there was a 5K along the bike trail. I ran the 5K wearing a gorilla suit with a KXRB t-shirt on. Now that, to me, that defines what I was doing. Okay. And then within days after that, I saw an ad Right at the end of the news hour one night, my wife and I were going up to the Old Town Theater. We were involved in some things there. And it said, South Dakota Public was looking for a director of scheduling and acquisition. I told my wife, I said, if you dumb down the words, they're looking for a program director. <laughs> so I applied for it. And then just a few weeks later, I was at Public. And the things that you did and why you did them were just 180. And I mean, how lucky is that for me? You know, to no longer run 5Ks in a gorilla suit for a publicity stunt and have a chance to talk with somebody interesting about something that meant something on another level as, as your work life. I mean, just yeah. fabulous. How did you make some of those programming choices from an innovation standpoint to say, well, this hasn't been done yet. We're going to do this. Um, a lot of the things that we've worked on have just come out of uh, normal life, you know, things that you might be interested in. The high school activities uh, involvement, uh, public broadcasting was involved in showing some high school activities, which were basically the leftovers that the commercial uh, TV station didn't want to have to broadcast. Mm-hmm. They would put them on and PBS would carry them. Um, but I had my nephew who played basketball for DeSmith. They won the B tournament in the early 90s. He went on to Black Hills State, and they were involved in the NAIA basketball tournament four years in a row. And one of the one or two of the years when they were in Boise during the tournament, there was this brand new thing in the 90s where you could turn on your computer, you could see the score, and you could hear the hometown announcer, whoever the hometown team was, and follow the game that way. And the score was almost immediate. The, the, the audio was 45-second delay. Yeah. And I thought, well, this is kind of, this is, this is interesting. This was something I was interested in because Josh was playing ball for the Yellow Jackets. And uh, during a, 
uh, right after a friends board meeting around 2001 in Pierre, I, I told Julie, I said, I'll go up to the High School Activities Association, see if they do anything online like this. Because by that time, Kent and I were the online group. Yeah. And I just walked up there and they, no, no, not really. I said, well, how about if, and that, that was in January, and we ran an experiment during the boys' basketball tournament, and by April I offered to do a contract with them where South Dakota Public would cover every, all of their 33 high school events for the next season on the Internet. <laughs> for starting with tennis yeah. and through golf and the whole thing. Yeah. And that kind of opened a door for what we were working on in our department, but led to the, like, well, why not do TV? Right. And to expand TV from the five events now to 16 plus, 17 now that, that we do here. You have been courtside. You have been at the Buffalo Roundup. Yeah. You have gone bicycling with Governor Dugard <laughs> and uh, Worst Lieutenant Governor on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> Matt Michaels. You have yeah. been in probably every town um, in the state of South Dakota finding those stories. Mm -hmm. What's the perfect South Dakota day for you? Oh, see, that's, that's my favorite question. Um, <laughs> it's your question. It's well, not mine. <laughs> so, see, well, I always answer that by telling a hunting story. Is that okay? Please. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've been reacquainted uh, since Marilyn and I have been married to uh, pheasant hunting, big family tradition. And I was involved a little bit of that when I was younger with my, with my dad. But um, my perfect day is after the first wave of out-of-staters have left, it's late November before the deer hunters are out. It's about 35, 38 degrees. There are a couple of public hunting areas I know where you can go and you can't hear road traffic. You're far enough off. And you're out there watching your dog and you spend four or five, six hours. You don't even need shells. You're just walking. You're enjoying a brisk, light breeze, uh, watching a dog do a thing that is just amazing, and, and you go hunting. And, oh, it's just, I just get lost for hours. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. yeah. You're still creating work for South Dakota Public yeah. Broadcasting. You're still in the field. You're still meeting people in yeah. uh, South Dakota communities. Uh, what, what are you excited about next? Some of the stories that you haven't gotten to yet, or what you see happening in rural South Dakota, especially that you just know is going to be impactful, you know, 10 years from now? What, you know, since we transitioned Dakota Life uh, and Brad and the whole team has, has evolved that show to where we're looking at communities, you take a deeper dive on a community and you start to find things that are similar. Yeah. Similar in that how dedicated people are to their community and to each other. Uh, and how they are revitalizing places that you have given up for dead. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, it, and you see it repeating itself time after time, and it's, it's, it, it's very invigorating. But one of the most invigorating things from that part that I enjoy with that work that we do is visiting reservation communities. Mm -hmm. Because we have, uh, of the seven, we've, we've visited, I think, three now, and there is a wave of things happening led by younger people mm -hmm. on reservations that's very, very invigorating. And I think will change the dynamic of racial relations. That's powerful. Yeah, I, that, that's, yeah. that's just a sense that I have. Yeah. And to see that is what a gift yeah. to be able to see that. So I have learned so much about how I do my job mm -hmm. and how to make radio from you. I'm still learning from you. I don't get out in the field nearly as often 
as you have or you do because most of my work is here okay. in the studio, but I'm going out next week. What I want to know, nobody, <laughs> I'll say this for the record, nobody can sit down with somebody like Larry Rorkin and get them to describe a sunset or a day in South Dakota or open up with a story that it feels like has never been said before. Um, what's your advice to sitting down with somebody in person in their own backyard and encouraging them or opening the door for that level of intimacy on the radio? You know, it's just a conversation. And, and it happened a couple of times um, over the past week and a half. I actually shot four different Dakota Life stories wow. and did one set of stand-ups for the Union Center show. And on each of those stories, part of it we got on tape, which we call a walk and talk, okay. where we were walking around this museum or walking around that shop and just, and just talking with the individual who's featured. And it's, um, you know, you're working without notes or anything, but it's just, a, it's just a conversation about what it is that fascinates that person or what they've done to develop this interest or skill that they have. And I, I just noticed that over the past couple of weeks. It's just to, to be interested in what is, makes their eyes light up. You know, and, and to, to just ask about, you know, because you do that so well, the, the curiosities of, of what's the next layer down behind, you know, why you're here. And uh, I just was involved with that. And it's that it's I mean, we it's almost like cocktail party type conversation at a little deeper, deeper level. Yeah. Only it's focused on that person. Yeah. Yeah. Charles Michael Ray said when I first got here, former SDPB yeah. person, I'm sure a lot of people remember him. He said, it just, it blows me away that, that you sound like you like all these people. And I was like, well, I do. That <laughs> <laughs> I really yeah. like people. And yeah. I like hearing what excites yeah. them, even if I don't agree with every single thing that they yeah. say. I really enjoy, you know, being in connection and connectivity yeah. with people. Yeah. A, a lot of, one thing I've, I found out is a lot of the Hall of Fame discussions evolve, and you've got it, you're under a time thing here. Let me know. Um, <laughs> Hey, you, you live you live by the clock. I looked at the clock, clock. and Larry Roar caught me. <laughs> well, no, but that's important. Um, it, it, just kind of, well, what what did you overcome? Yeah. Okay, and that's where and and they do a great job of of visiting with some of the of the inductees about what did you overcome to achieve what you've achieved. And I've thought about that, and um, it isn't so much overcoming as and I, I what would my response be? And, and it's this: there have many things that that we've worked on here at Public. And you've been involved in some of them where what you have to overcome is the way you've always done it, mm. okay? By if you need to recreate or solve something, you're not working with the resources that you see. You have to envision what can be accomplished, what you want it to be, and then figure out what it will take to get it because that, that will take you down a different path. And I think that has probably been behind a lot of the projects that have been part of this nomination with this work is is as a group, we thought about the way we wanted to do things and, and what they should be and had to invent the tools and the resources to get there. Yeah. And that's a, different, that's a different type of thinking. And I think it's, it's been deployed and is being deployed uh, in public broadcasting in South Dakota. Uh, incredible advice. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Larry Rohr, um, part of the 2023 South Dakota Hall of Fame inductees that uh, honor ceremony September 8th and 9th in Chamberlain, Oakoma. Thank you yeah. for being here. What, what we're going to do now is skip the next segment that we're going to play. We're going to go to break because we spent 
loving time oh. with Larry Roar. <laughs> Thank See, you. Sorry. <laughs> Be right back on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, my next guest is on a mission to help indigenous communities reclaim their health and wellness. Tasha Peltier is a 2023 Bush Fellowship recipient. I always feel like I'm going to pop the confetti when I say that. Tasha is with me on the phone. Tasha, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. We're having a lot of fun on the radio today, and uh, the Bush Fellowship announcement is one of my favorite times of the year. As a Bush Fellow myself, um, I know what goes into even the application process of this. So tell us a little bit about finding out that you had been selected as a 2023 Fellow and what that moment was like for you. Yeah, it was, you know, it was really exciting. I think, you know, one of the biggest thing is, things, you know, is the length of the process. You know, yeah. it's it's really long. And so you're going through all these various steps. And, you know, each time you make it to the next level, you're like, you know, it's exciting and also nerve wracking. And so I think, um, you know, when I got the, the email that I was selected, it was just like a huge, you know, sigh of relief for me because it was it had been so you know a long time coming and so it was really exciting I was actually um, at a conference in Alaska with a lot of my colleagues doing similar work and so it was just like a super exciting moment for me and and just kind of validating that all of the work that we're doing is so important and people see that yeah tell me a little bit about healing and well-being um, especially as it intersects with uh, traditional life and ceremonies and teachings what is your work that you're doing now and why is it important to this next process? Yeah, so I do, you know, I work, uh, my background is in public health and I work in a couple of different sectors, you know, of public health. On one hand, I work, you know, um, in quality improvement and kind of working from the inside out, looking at health systems and ensuring that we're improving the quality of care that are provided within our communities. I also work with a local nonprofit. I, I help lead that um, and, and the Minimi 20 Health Circle, which is focused on, you know, kind of uplifting our own ways of thinking and being and incorporating the ceremonial and spirituality pieces of health and wellness. And, and I think that really gives me this, this unique perspective that, you know, recognizes the importance of Western medicine and, and acknowledges that, you know, there are a lot of times and um, ways that we need those things, but also I can see the voids that we have within those current systems that we're, we're operating in. And so, you know, I'm really um, trying to think about how do we, um, you know, kind of change those systems and really make them more applicable and more relevant to our communities because we know that culture and spirituality really are a huge part of our overall health and wellness. And sometimes, a lot of times, those are the, the pieces that are missing in these systems that we're receiving care from. So it's I'm just really envisioning, you know, looking at how can we change that? How can we build systems that are, um, you know, fit, that do fit our communities? And then as you go on, I'm sure you've already experienced this when you say uplifting our own ways of thinking. Those ways of thinking have been um, put down for so long or even the attempt to eradicate a way of thinking that you're going to have to you're going to stumble upon things when you're like, I'm blown away by systemically how this is not allowed because of our shared history. Tell me a little bit about what you've experienced already about the challenges or the obstacles to to uplifting those things. 
Well, I think one of the, you know, challenges that, that we see is that because, you know, there was intentional federal policy, like you said, to kind of eradicate these things and to really change who we were, and, and there is residual effects of that in our communities. And so we still are combating even the negative views that we have of those things in our own communities. And so, or maybe even a feeling of, you know, not feeling worthy of those things. So we're really, um, you know, doing two different things. We're battling um, against all of these, these historical things that have, you know, these historical things that have been done to our communities. And we're also trying to simultaneously um, give our communities the confidence and, and, you know, share that these are your things. These ceremonies are for you and they are important to who you are. And, and ident- strength and identity is an important piece of your health and wellness because, you know, we, we, we see that in, you know, healthcare specifically, there's this weird like power dynamic, right? You have a medical yeah. doctor or a, some kind of a healthcare professional that um, is kind of this power dynamic that exists makes you think that they are the all-knowing, right? They have all the answers where we know that there's so many aspects of us as individuals that are so important to the to to improving health and to getting to an optimal outcome, you know, regarding whatever whatever health issue you're dealing with. And so it's about really um, instilling that confidence in our our communities too, and and letting them, you know, be confident in advocating for those things that they need and want um, to be addressing their health. Yeah, that brings up something for me as I'm sort of midway through my fellowship time now that um, I, I'm thinking back to the excitement of starting and then I'm thinking back to all those little moments where the wheels sort of came off the cart and my plan didn't unfold as planned and then I had to pause and say I have to apply some of these to my own life and in your case this means you're going to have to find ways to take care of yourself which you've already confronted, I'm sure, but you'll have to confront in the future. What's your pre-plan for sitting back and figuring out how to do this for you, for Tasha? Right. I think that was one of the (laughs) hardest pieces of this whole thing is that they're really pushing you to think about yourself. And I think why, why that, for me specifically, it's hard is because, you know, in the work you know, that we do or the the things that we're taught as Indigenous peoples is, you know, we do often things for the greater good, right? It's never about me or I. We all needed each other for survival. And those are just things that are ingrained in our in our brains. And so to think, you know, selfishly almost is really difficult. And so, but then if you look at the big picture and kind of connect the dots, you know, understanding, we also were very practical and we knew that we had to care for ourselves before we could care for everybody else. And so, you know, if you look at it from a different lens and really think about, yes, I'm taking care of myself or I'm being selfish, but I'm also doing it so that I can sustain myself and do the work you know, to push back on some of these systems or to push back on some of these narratives that have been, you know, negatively impacting our communities. And so, you know, being able to kind of flip that narrative is a little bit, um, it makes it a little bit easier, but um, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to incorporate all of the self-care, but that is definitely a message that I heard loud and clear is that (laughs) you also have to take care of yourselves. Yeah, I keep going back to like being burned out is an obstacle to your leadership. So taking care of that is removing the obstacles to doing the work that you want to do. And if I get it figured out, I'll call you <laughs> and tell you the, the secret sauce because I don't know that it exists, but it is day-by-day support um, with your other fellows. I guess that would be my advice too. Um, that is a fantastic cohort that you're a part of. 
Um, Tasha Peltier is a 2023 Bush Fellowship recipient. We hope to talk to her again, but thank you so much for your time today. Congratulations, big time. Thank you so much. Nice talking to you. Let's talk now about a post-pandemic vision for the STEM community. We're diving into a book. It's called Lessons Learned, Stories from Women Leaders in STEM. The book is from the American Association for Physician Leadership, and it asks women to talk about not only their careers, but the complex forces that serve as obstacles and launching pads to success. My next guest is Rachel Willand Charnley. She's an assistant. They are an assistant professor at South Dakota State University and also a contributing author of Lessons Learned. And they join me now from SDPB's Janine Basinger Studio at South Dakota State University. Dr. Willand Charnley, I'm so happy that you're back. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. What an empowering experience this is going to be. I am loving your chapter. I just sort of want to, um, you know, Tear, the book's great, but I want to tear it out of the book because I know you and like mm-hmm. paste the individual sheets, <laughs> closet mm-hmm. door or something <laughs> yeah. as, as reminders. Tell me a little bit about being invited to sort of think about your journey in STEM and some of the things that you learned and, and putting your chapter together. Like go back to the genesis of this for me. Sure. So I was approached last summer by a very talented writer Deborah Schlein and she came to me with this project and she said she felt very compelled to um, she felt very compelled to write a book about uh, women in STEM and their perseverant experiences at various career stages and ages and how they navigated basically discriminatory behavior and implicit bias and this comes more on the tail and of her actually writing another book about women navigating the world of becoming an MD, but now through the lens of the STEM sciences. Yeah. And I, th- I think you also asked what my motivation was for contributing to this book. Yeah. Or keep maybe going. I'm wrong. Go no, ahead. keep going. Yeah. So I decided to contribute to this book basically for two reasons. So personally, no one's career path deserves to be derailed because of discriminatory behavior or implicit bias. And then technically speaking, diversity in every form is imperative to our success as a scientific community, which our success directly benefits society. So as a result, we need to ensure that we address and showcase, which is what the book does, it showcases how women navigated um, processes like discrimination and implicit bias that undermine our ability to really increase inclusivity, equitability, which those two together, if you foster an inclusive environment, one that strives to be equitable, that should equate ideally to increasing intellectual diversity Mm. in the scientific community, which again, our success is society's success. You have been told things like women aren't smart enough to be mm-hmm. chemists by mm-hmm. <laughs> your professor. Mm-hmm. 
Um, mm-hmm. And this was as part of a, like, you didn't pick it up right away. Like, you were dedicated to learn this information. It was hard for you. You were going back and asking, you know, it just wasn't clicking. And then at some right. point, you're just told, you know what, you're not smart enough to do this. And by the way, that's because of your gender. I, mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you. When stuff like that happens to me, like, I don't shake it off easily. I agree. I didn't either. Um, yeah, so that was my undergraduate chemistry professor at the time. And um, that experience really impacted me. I felt jarred, devastated, insecure. And part of the reason being, and there's a really important take-home message that came out of it, um, I used to essentially put my professors on a pedestal. They were, I viewed them as academic mentors and leaders. And that status conferred more unintentional power, trust, validation than I ever should have given them. And in this case... In addition, they appeared to believe that it was their job to tell me what I was capable of or what I wasn't capable of. And now as a professor in my own right, I take the view that it's never the job of a professor to, or a person for that matter, to project that onto anyone else. We are the arbiters of our success, our potential, our roadmaps, no one else. Um, So... He, it's you know, it's always one of those experiences where you have a negative experience, but you can utilize it to empower you in the future. And I, I hate to say it almost, but he did shape me in a very positive way concerning who I am today as a professor, as a scientist, and as a human being. Um, one thing that he really taught me was the importance of self-validation versus yeah. seeking external validation. Um, uh, you know, someone asked me, it was my husband, actually, he asked me what the hardest part about writing this book was, like reliving the yeah. moments in time that were my own paradigm shifts to who I became today. And that experience was one of the hardest experiences to live through again, because mm. I see it through this different lens of somebody who's mature, who has gone through so much uh, and been shaped by these interactions. And when I look back I realized that um, not only did I have this awful performance anxiety and I became afraid to be put into a position of disappointing my professors, to be viewed as stupid, incapable, or pigeonholed based off of gender or something else that's arbitrary. But, you know, um, where was I going with this? I became afraid also to fail, which is awful because failure is such an integral aspect of the learning process. And now I teach students, and this is one of the positive things that came out of it. I teach students to become comfortable with making mistakes because to engage in metacognizant processes and thinking from those mistakes, because that's how substantive learning happens. But sorry, going back to what was so devastating about that experience is that I, at the time I was really robbed of my love of learning just because, and now I have that back, but at the time, you know, it became learning out of fear of failure and that's never going to set students up for success. And spite, you know, like we, you know, we have this narrative that says, oh, you know, someone says something hard to you or inappropriate Mm -hmm. or whatever. Well, now you're going to work harder, which of course you did, but that was fueled and the cost of that, you talk about the intellectual and physical toll that had on you. And that was mm-hmm. so powerful to me to just say, if if you can just move past that and realize that that says mm-hmm. more about their insecurities than yours, then you can keep yes. going. Like, you have to deal with mm-hmm. it. You can't, like, mm-hmm. bury it and not feel the feelings. But uh, I thought that was just a really powerful 
um, you know, take away from that. I want to make sure I let listeners know before yeah. we run out of time that there's a book signing at the Nook in Brookings oh, on July you. 15th that uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Willand Charnley will be at. Mm -hmm. And we just have about oh, 30 seconds left. Wow. And I know we really need an hour. We, you know, we're going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to come to you and we're going to sit down and talk because there's so much in, in here. Um, yeah. But I feel like we should end with just these, the from the lessons, right. you've learned to ask for what you want. Say just something yeah. small about just having the confidence to say, this is what I mm -hmm. want to be successful. Mm -hmm. Yes. My encompassing take-home messages, to, since we're wrapping this up, to anybody out there who's navigating a career in STEM is continue to persevere, continue to invest in self-validation, garner or reach out to those who can help with positivity, aff uh, you know, positive affirmation, and then always ask for what you want and what you need to be successful. Yeah. And remember that, again, you're the arbiter of your roadmap. The book is called Lessons Learned, Stories from Women Leaders in STEM. This chapter, Rachel Willand Charnley from SDSU. Currently, she has her own lab. They have their own lab there. I'm sorry, Rachel. Thank you. I oh, swear. it's really fun. <laughs> it's one of those days where <laughs> so many things in my head that something is going to yes. spill out. But thank no, you so much fine. for your time. We'll talk with you again. Can't wait. Thank you. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. Thank you for listening. <laughs>